Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! We rely on your support to produce our independent journalism. Please do your part today by donating at democracynow.org. And thank you so much. is democracy now. As the Iranian government continues to severely repress street protests, Iran's feminist uprisings continue unabated, with women and girls now taking to daily acts of civil disobedience. Women, life, freedom. That's the rallying cry in Iran and cities around the world in protest demanding justice for Masa Amini, the 22-year-old Iranian Kurdish woman who died after she was detained by Iran's so-called morality police for allegedly wearing her headscarf improperly. We'll get the latest on Iran and look at what cell phone video footage reveals about the protests. We'll also hear Angela Davis's message to the women of Iran. And then, as India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi offers to help efforts to end the war in Ukraine, we'll speak to the prominent Indian activist Kavita Krishna. The left and progressive people, um, we've stood unconditionally with the people of Vietnam, with the people of Iraq, with the people of Afghanistan, with the people of Palestine against American imperialism, uh, American occupations, American invasions, and uh, so on. Um, and in the same way, we should stand unconditionally with the people of Ukraine. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Biden toured storm-ravaged parts of Florida Wednesday, pledging billions of dollars in federal aid for people impacted by Hurricane Ian, which made landfall last week as one of the most devastating storms ever to hit the United States. Biden viewed the storm's path of destruction by helicopter flying over Fort Myers Beach, which took a direct hit from Ian's Category 4 winds. He then met with Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, a potential rival in the 2024 presidential election. Biden said after their meeting, the recovery effort could take years and blamed the climate crisis for adding to Ian's destructive power. More fires have burned in the west and the southwest, burned everything right to the ground than the, the entire state of New Jersey, the, the, as much room as that takes up. And the reservoirs out west are, are, are down to almost zero. We're in a situation where the Colorado River looks more like a stream. There's a lot going on. And I think the one thing this has finally ended is a discussion about whether or not there's climate change and we should do something about it. In Ethiopia, more than 50 people were killed, more than 70 injured in the northern Tigray region Tuesday after an airstrike ripped through a school housing people displaced by fighting between Ethiopia's military and separatist rebels. It's among the deadliest attacks carried out in Tigray since conflict erupted in November 2020, leaving thousands dead, millions displaced from their homes. On Wednesday, both Ethiopia's government and Tigray rebels said they'd accepted an African Union invitation to join peace talks in South Africa 
aimed at ending the conflict. Russian President Vladimir Putin has signed papers formally declaring Russia's annexation of four regions of Ukraine. Putin's signatures came as Ukraine's military continued to claim battlefield victories against Russia, saying it retook more settlements in Luhansk and Kherson, two of the regions claimed by the Kremlin. Also Wednesday, Putin signed a decree declaring Russian control over the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, Europe's largest nuclear station, which has has been occupied by Russia's military since March. In a video statement posted online, the head of Ukraine's nuclear power agency called on workers at Saporizhia to resist Russia's bid to take over plant operations. I am sure that your bravery will not yield to your wisdom, and you will not sign any deals with the occupier. You won't sign any statements and contracts. Don't do it under any circumstances. We will continue to work under Ukrainian law with the Ukrainian energy system. Don't doubt it. Meanwhile, The New York Times reports U.S. intelligence agencies believe parts of the Ukrainian government authorized the car bomb attack near Moscow in August that killed Daria Dugina the daughter of a prominent Russian nationalist. The Times reports American officials claimed they were not aware of the operation ahead of time and would have opposed the assassination had they been consulted. In Russia, a former TV news producer whose on-air anti-war protest was seen around the world has escaped house arrest. Marina Avsyanakova made international headlines in March after she burst onto the set of a live news broadcast of Channel One, the Russian state media channel, appearing on screen for several seconds, shouting, stop the war, no to war, before the camera cut away. In August, Russian police raided her home, placed her on house arrest for allegedly spreading false information about the Russian armed forces. If convicted, she faces up to 15 years in prison. On Monday, she posted a video online from an unknown location declaring herself innocent, showing off an electronic tag around her ankle used by Russian authorities to track her location. Esteemed colleagues of the Federal Penitentiary Service, put an electric tag like this on Putin. It is he, not I, who should be kept away from society and put on trial over the genocide of the people of Ukraine and the mass killing of Russian men. OPEC, the organization of the petroleum exporting countries, has agreed to cut crude oil output by two million barrels a day. On Wednesday, OPEC members, led by Saudi Arabia and joined by Russia, voted to keep global prices high by imposing their sharpest cuts to the world's supply of oil since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. The Biden administration sharply criticized what it called a short-sighted decision to cut production while the global economy suffers negative impacts from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This comes amidst growing calls for the Biden administration to ban exports of U.S. gasoline, diesel and other refined fuels. Food and Water Watch said in a statement, quote, political leaders here at home must understand the solution is not to increase drilling. Corporations are exporting record quantities of gasoline and making record-setting profits as a result. It's time to take real action to rein in this outrageous corporate profiteering, they said.
a key member of the U.S. House Armed Services Committee, has renewed his calls on President Biden to end arms sales to Saudi Arabia over the kingdom's efforts to raise oil prices. Congressmember Ro Khanna told The Washington Post Wednesday, quote, President Biden should make it clear we will stop supplying the Saudis with weapons and air parts if they fleece the American people and strengthen Putin by making drastic production cuts, he said. Meanwhile, The Wall Street Journal reports the Biden administration is preparing to scale down sanctions on Venezuela to allow the Chevron Corporation to resume pumping oil there in return for reopening U.S. and European markets to oil exports from Venezuela. The government of President Nicolas Maduro would agree to negotiate with U.S.-supported opposition groups over a new round of presidential elections in 2024. In the United Kingdom, newly minted conservative Prime Minister Liz Truss faced protests Wednesday as she defended her proposals to cut taxes for the wealthy while expanding fossil fuel production. Truss was speaking at the Conservative Party conference in Birmingham when a pair of Greenpeace campaigners stood up and unveiled a banner reading, Who Voted for This? The pair had their signs snatched away and were escorted from the conference hall as Conservative Party members booed them. Greenpeace's Rebecca Newsom said after the protest, Trust should reverse a ban on fracking imposed by conservatives in 2019. Nobody voted for fracking. Nobody voted to cut benefits. Nobody voted to trash nature. Nobody voted to scrap workers' rights. There's a whole host of things that the Conservative government were elected to do in 2019 that they are simply not doing. A new report warns one out of every eight species of bird on Earth is threatened with extinction. In its flagship State of the World's Birds report, the conservative group BirdLife International, the conservation group BirdLife International, finds half of all species are in decline, primarily due to habitat destruction and the increasing use of machinery and chemicals in agriculture. BirdLife CEO Patricia Zarita said, quote, birds tell us about the health of our natural environment. We ignore their messages at our peril, she said. A Michigan judge has thrown out felony criminal charges against former state officials accused of playing key roles in the Flint water crisis. The ruling ends a criminal probe of Eden Wells and Nick Lyon, two former leaders of the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, who faced nine counts of involuntary manslaughter for failing to promptly report an outbreak of Legionnaire's disease, which killed 12 people and sickened dozens. Also avoiding prosecution are former cabinet members of Republican ex-Governor Rick Snyder, who are accused of knowingly exposing Flint's residents to dangerous levels of lead in the water supply. Neera Sharif, a community organizer and director of Flint Rising, tweeted, We have many people's lives that have been upended, including my own, and there are no consequences. Justice looks like someone going to jail, criminally accountable, she said. This follows a decision in June by Michigan Supreme Court to throw out charges against the former governor, Rick Snyder, and other former officials for their complicity in Flint's public health emergency. Flint Rising organizer Melissa Mays spoke to Democracy Now! after that ruling.
No one is being held accountable. No one is seeing justice. No one is seeing reparations in Flint. Our homes, our bodies, our lives are still damaged and destroyed. And the people responsible are getting away with it because like Nayara said, they have uh, rich white folk and government heads have a whole different justice system than the rest of us. In Thailand, at least 35 people were killed earlier today when a former police officer went on a murderous rampage in a nursery. Police say the 34-year-old suspect shot and stabbed children at a child care center in northeastern Thailand, killing 19 boys, three girls and two adults. Thai authorities say the assailant then fled the scene, opening fire early randomly from his car. He then returned home, killed his wife and child, and turned the gun on himself. It's Thailand's bloodiest mass shooting since 2020, when a soldier with an assault rifle killed 29 people and wounded nearly 60 others. In Greece, at least 15 migrants have died. Dozens more remain missing after a pair of boats capsized off the coast of Greece. In the first incident, a boat carrying about 40 asylum seekers sank off the eastern island of Lesbos. So far, 15 bodies have been recovered from the shipwreck, all of them women. Elsewhere, authorities are searching for survivors after a sailboat carrying about 100 migrants sank off an island in southern Greece late Wednesday. Japan's government has condemned another series of missile tests by North Korea. On Thursday, Japan's military said it detected two short-range ballistic missiles fired from North Korea into waters separating the two countries. This follows four other launches from North Korea in the past two weeks, including Tuesday's launch of an intermediate-range missile that flew over Japan. Japan's defense minister spoke earlier today. These actions by North Korea are a threat to the peace and security of our country, region and the international community. It's absolutely unacceptable. Today, North Korea condemned the U.S. Navy after it deployed, redeployed, a carrier battle group led by the USS Ronald Reagan to the Sea of Japan, saying U.S. actions were, quote, posing a serious threat to the stability of the situation on the Korean Peninsula, unquote. And the French writer, Annie Arnaud, has won the Nobel Prize for Literature. The Nobel Committee cited Annie Arnaud for the, quote, courage and clinical acuity with which she uncovers the roots, estrangements, and collective restraints of personal memory. Her books include Happening, about a young woman student who has an abortion. Last year, it was made into an award-winning film. On Friday, the winner of the Nobel Peace Prize will be announced. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. Coming up, as India's prime minister offers to help efforts to end the war in Ukraine, we'll speak to a prominent Indian activist, Kavita Krishnan. Stay with us.
In These Times by Micaiah McRaven. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Nermeen Sheikh. Hi, Nermeen. Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Women, life, freedom. That's the rallying cry in Iran and cities around the world as protests continue demanding justice for Masa Amini, the 22-year-old Iranian Kurdish woman who died after she was detained by Iran's so-called morality police for allegedly wearing her headscarf improperly. Amini died on September 16th. Protests broke out the next day. The Norway-based group Iran Human Rights says at least 154 people have been killed since the protests began in Iran nearly three weeks ago. In a new report, Human Rights Watch has accused Iran's security forces of using shotguns, assault rifles and handguns against peaceful protesters. The full extent of the protests or the security crackdown remains unknown, as the Iranian government has disrupted Internet access in parts of Iran and blocked some messaging apps. But some video of the protests continue to get out. This video, obtained by Reuters, shows a group of female students heckling a member of an Iranian paramilitary force known as the Vasiji. The female students are heard chanting, Vasiji, get lost. We begin today's show with two guests. Nargis Bajogli is an anthropologist and professor of Middle East Studies at Johns Hopkins University. She's the author of Iran Refrained, uh, Reframed, Anxieties of Power in the Islamic Republic. Her latest piece for Vanity Fair is headlined Women, Life, Freedom, Iran's Protest or Rebellion for Bodily Autonomy. Also with us is Nila Tabrizi. She is an Iranian-born video journalist who works at The New York Times. Her most recent piece is titled, What Video Footage Reveals About the Protests in Iran. Let's go to those pictures first. Um, Nilo, if you could start off by talking about this project at The New York Times and what the video shows. Thank you so much, Amy. So we examined videos that primarily were coming out in the first week, week and a half of the protests. That's when the internet connection was not as disrupted as what we're seeing right now. So we saw multiple things, and I can kind of boil it down into three main visual trends that we saw. We saw that uh, protesters were targeting symbols of the state. So we saw protesters tearing down posters of Ayatollah Ali Khomeini, the founder of the Islamic Republic. We saw protesters attacking police stations and government building complexes. And another main thing that we saw, which has been very much the topic of conversation about these protests, was really seeing women in the lead. So that's everything from the defining images of seeing women burning their hijabs in public to women cutting their hair as a form of protest. And as well, we heard uh, a lot of women-centric slogans, like you just said, Zan Zendegi Azadi, that's very much been at the forefront of these protests. And as well, something that Dr. Bajok Lee has written about, um, we saw women really, what it seems like for the first time, putting their bodies in direct confrontation with the police. So they're, you know, actually going to physically fight them, going up to them, being very bold, 
this really stood out to us. And we saw that in, in multiple places across the country. And the last thing that we saw is just these protests have been so widespread. So we've seen solidarity among social class, different regions, different ethnic backgrounds. And um, something that really stood out to us for that is we saw protests in religious and uh, traditionally conservative cities that are regime strongholds like Qom and Mashhad, where we can hear protesters saying death to the Islamic Republic. And as well, we saw, um, we could hear the chant, Zan Zendigi Azadi, which originates from Kurdish. We heard uh, people chanting it in Kurdish in Tehran, so well outside of Kurdistan, which to us really showed, um, you know, this solidarity across the country. And Nilo uh, Tabrizi, if you could also uh, talk about uh, the state symbols that have been attacked during these protests and the significance of those state symbols. And in addition to this main chant, Zan Zandegi Azodi, uh, Woman, Life, Freedom, there have also been others. What are the ones that have really uh, caught on? Sure, absolutely. So um, in terms of state symbols, we've seen, like I said, tearing down the poster of Khomeini. We've seen protesters tear down pictures of Ali Khamenei, the current supreme leader. We've seen them tear down posters of Soleimani. And seeing this is just very, you know, it's a very bold thing to see. Um, there's so much repression in the state uh, that seeing people tear down these symbols really gives us a visual understanding of, of what these protests are towards. It seems like they are very much calling for, um, you know, a, a, a complete restructure and, and a complete dissatisfaction with the current order. Um, and as well, in terms of the other chants that have caught on, um, yeah, I mean, the main ones that we kept seeing are Zan Zendigi Azadi. We are seeing, um, you know, death to the Islamic Republic, death to Khomeini, uh, really calling for a downfall of the, of the system. Um, those are the main ones coming through. And this is something that, you know, perhaps Dr. Bajokli might have, um, you know, her thoughts on. But something that we saw was these chants are very much women-centered. So in 2009, for example, when Neda was killed in the Green Movement protests, she very much became a symbol of state repression. There were chants at that time that chanted her name. Uh, this time around, we're not necessarily hearing uh, Masajina, um, um, her name so much. We're really hearing Zan Zendigi Azadi. And we're also hearing chants that particularly had male references translated into, into women-centric references. So the chant, for example, that we might have heard in previous protests is, um, I, I will defend, you know, I will seek revenge for, for my brother. We're hearing that I will seek def uh, I will seek revenge or I will defend my sister. So we're re really hearing that um, translated into a women-centric chant to reflect the movement. Uh, Professor Nargis Bajogli, your, your piece uh, for Vanity Fair is headlined, Woman Life Freedom, Iran's Protests Are a Rebellion for Bodily Autonomy. In the piece, you make a very interesting point, which is that Masa Amini, uh, a Kurdish girl around, who's these, uh, around whom these protests began, uh, around her death, that her real name, Gina, uh, a Kurdish name, could not actually officially be registered under Iranian law. So could you explain why that is and, and the significance of these protests beginning around uh, uh, the death of this young uh, Kurdish woman? 
Kurds in Iran have been repressed both pre-revolution and post-revolution. Um, a lot of the ethnic minorities in Iran, especially those who live in the border areas, have uh, faced uh, both severe repression as well as um, very few resources going to those areas um, uh, of the country for development, for uh job opportunities for all of those things. So, And many Kurds, as well as some other ethnic minorities in Iran, are not allowed to teach their languages in schools. Um, and uh, Gina's name could not be registered in, under Iranian law because uh, under Iranian law, only certain uh, Persian and Islamic names can be registered formally. And so they had to register her uh, Persian name, Mahsa, in, instead of her Kurdish name, Gina. It's insignificant that this uprising has started over the death of a Kurdish girl who was visiting um, Tehran. She, she didn't live in Tehran. She lived in Saqqa's, uh, a town in, in Iranian Kurdistan. Um, and, you know, these issues over identity and ethnicity have often been sort of fault lines that states have used in Iran uh, to not allow solidarity to take place across the country. And what we see is that uh, a nation rose up um, in defense of the death of a Kurdish girl. And the central slogan, as Nigu has been mentioning, of this entire uprising is a slogan that originates in Kurdish, comes from a militant feminist uh, Kurdish background from uh, Turkey, first of all, and then gets translated into um, the Kurdish women fighting in Syria and against ISIS in 2014 and 2015. And then it travels uh, around and it comes to Iran. And the reason that it becomes a national cry is because during uh, her funeral, um, you can hear mourners uh, chanting that slogan. It gets captured on, on video. It circulates on social media. And then it spills out into Persian all across the country. Professor, um, in your piece in Vanity Fair, you write, it's only fitting it's Iran's feminist revolution and the country's young generations that are on the front lines of battles for bodily autonomy and sovereignty. For four decades, Iranian women and queers have borne the brunt of a political system predicated on their subjugation through daily policing and criminalization. They're now showing the world, despite the severe repression and potential death they face, how to fight back like feminists. Um, take it from there. Yes. So this is really at its core a fight for uh, women and uh, queer folks to have choices over their bodies. So what's really important, as Nilu was providing the context, is that um, the the Islamic Republic has implemented um, laws that uh, that are severely restrictive for women um, since the very beginnings of the 1979 revolution and the start of the state. Um, so. And what's significant here about what happened uh, to Amini is that uh, she was caught at the hands of the so-called morality police, which are a police force that are a daily occurrence all across Iran. All women have had some kind of interactions with the morality police and families, uh, uh, including religious ones, have had some form of, of uh, interaction with these police because their daughters may not be availing uh, as religiously as the mothers have. And so this is something that women are, are dealing with every day. Um, when uh, Amini was taken, it first uh, ended up in a coma and later uh, died uh, from the injuries that she sustained. Um, 
what we are seeing is that the the ways in which women in Iran have been resisting every single day against these restrictions over the past 40 years, we now see this as a rupture in collective action. Uh, so it, it's not surprising to me that um, sort of this generation's um, and in our global moment, our generation's first big feminist uprising that is militant in style is, is taking place in Iran on this level because uh, Iranian women have uh, over four decades of experience of daily acts of resistance against patriarchal laws and against patriarchal norms. And so as conservative movements uh, are rising across the world, as we see more and more laws that are coming down against women, and, you know, I think it's worth noting that conservative movements, when they rise, and religious movements, when they rise, first and foremost, they go after the rights of women. And so right now, I think even though traditional media has been very slow to cover this uprising, it's been um, uh, in Internet users all over the world that have made hashtag Masa Amini trend. And it's, that's the reason we're all having this conversation today. So it's striking a chord with people all over the world who are in one way or another experiencing either once again or a continuation of increased patriarchal control over women's bodies. And so the protests in Iran are capturing our attention because we're seeing in real life how women are putting their lives on the line and are refusing to comply any longer. You know, power and patriarchy requires that we comply. And so we're seeing now a uh, young women and, and women across Iran who are just saying, I will no longer comply with this. Uh, Professor Bajigli, I want to ask you, Bajigli, I want to ask you uh, uh, about what you see as the potential outcome uh, of these protests. I was listening to uh, an interview on the BBC with a renowned uh, Iranian graphic novelist, Marjan Satrapi, who said that irrespective of what happens, the Islamic Republic is now a corpse. But you write in your piece that, uh, in your Vanity Fair piece, that the street rebellions may or may not succeed in toppling the regime or changing the laws, but that's almost beside the point. Can you explain what you mean by that and what the effects of these protests might be, even if the regime doesn't fall? Right. So we don't, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't predict what's going to happen. But um, at the moment, uh, what is very significant about these protests is that women are taking uh, control back from the state. They are saying, we will not allow you to define how we come out onto the street. We will define this for ourselves. Um, and uh, and so what is significant here is that, you know, when when you rise up against powers and, 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 and things that have been around for millennia, like patriarchy, which is, you know, one of, unfortunately, one of the universal values that we see around us. Um, this is something that it takes a, um, we have to be able to envision that we can live in a society without that. And, and so what that requires is a, a representation of, res, of resisting that kind of power. And what we have now in Iran for Iranians, which is extremely significant, is that we have on a daily basis is now various forms of civil disobedience, which are about standing up against patriarchal power. And we're seeing more and more slogans also that say it might not be always the morality police, but the morality police could also be called your father. So it's, it's, it's going to the core of 
patriarchy in the state and patriarchy in the home. Um, and it's really, and that's what makes this feminist to its core. It's saying that in order for us to have any kind of freedom, political or otherwise, women need to be free. Um, and and so the, the long-term consequences of this are significant because what we see also in Iran is that young girls in schools, elementary school students, middle school students, high school students are, as you guys showed on your piece, are throwing out um, uh, those who have enforced these laws in their schools for over four decades. And so it, this is just the start of, of women and girls seeing their power, seeing it reverberate, and then seeing it in, and, and seeing so many people around the world showing solidarity to it. Um, and, and that is significant for Iran, but it's also significant for all of us as we're sitting here contemplating how we're going to be fighting back against all of these laws that are trying to restrict our bodies now. We are we are now seeing a very confrontational, militant form of fem feminism rising up from Iran, showing us how to do that. During a speech in the European Union Assembly, a Swedish member of the parliament, Abir al-Salani, cut her hair in solidarity with the Iranian protest Tuesday evening in Strasbourg, France. The hands of the regime of the mullahs in Iran is stained with blood. Neither history, nor Allah or God Almighty will forgive you for the crimes against humanity that you are committing against your own citizens, with the peoples and the citizens of the EU. Demand the unconditional an immediate stop of all the violence against the women and men in Iran. Until Iran is free, our fury will be bigger than the oppressors. Until the women of Iran are free, we are going to stand with you. Jian, Jian, Azadi, women, life, freedom. There has been dramatic video of solidarity with the protests in Iran all over the world. In addition to the protests drawing thousands and thousands of people, including in Los Angeles, which has a very large Iranian-American community, um, and the Swedish MP that we just played, prominent French actresses from Juliette Binoche to Isabel Huppert also posted a video online cutting their hair. Um, Nilo, if you can talk, since you're examining this video, um, one, about the video getting out of Iran, but two, the video of these actions of solidarity. How easy is it for people in Iran, for the women to see this solidarity when apps are being shut down, etc.? Absolutely. So, yes, the Internet crackdown is is happening right now. Um, I have a hard time reaching my family members, but Iranians are, are really smart. They know how to move and maneuver around uh, state repression. It's something that they have been doing for, for years. So there are windows and ways in which that they can see the outside world and how videos are still getting sent out to, to people like me who are watching and monitoring. Video, videos are very much our primary window into what's going on in Iran, um, given the repression of domestic journalists and international journalists that are that at once were accredited to be based there. So this is really the primary way that we're seeing it. And seeing these 
videos of women in Iran cutting their hair. It's, it's very moving. It's something we focused on in our piece. Um, and when we spoke with one of our experts, uh, Reza Akbari, about it, he said it's very much the symbol that is unique to these protests. It's, it's women saying, you know, back to the morality police, back to the state. If this is what's bothering you uh, in a sarcastic, bitter way, let me cut it off. It's, it's very powerful what they're doing. And something that really caught my eye when we were watching the videos coming out, specifically with cutting hair as a form of protest, is there is a video um, of a protester's funeral. So often in the past when protesters have been killed by the state, they're very much dissuaded from being public at all about it. It's a quiet burial um, and things like that. But we saw a, a video um, broadcast from from one of these funerals that was put on social media that you can see this open grieving, that you can see people grieving for their, their young family member who was killed in these protests. One of her family members began begins to cut her hair over the casket. Um, and so making, you you know, not only making this funeral a, a public statement, which is in itself is very new, shocking and bold in these protests, but adding that visual of cutting her hair on top of it is just, yeah, it's, it's incredibly moving to see these images. Professor Bajorli, your response, what do you think accounts for the extent of uh, global solidarity in this very uh, uh, visual and open way, not just demonstrations, but, but so many women cutting their hair and posting it online? And if you could compare this also, in 2009, you were in Iran during the protest called the Green Movement. What differentiates that one from this one? Sure. So to answer your first question, um, I think the reason this is reverberating so broadly across the world is, again, um, we're feeling lots of frustrations um, all around the world with uh, n not just the rise of conservative um, power, but also just the, uh, the concentration and the monopoly of power of, around the world, whether it's by our, our own, you know, the different states that we all live in, corporations that were, you know, like the, all the applications that we all use and the ways in which that they are um, owned by very, very few companies. And so we're, we're in this moment um, in which, uh, especially those in, in the millennial generation and what we call Generation Z are trying, they, they are showing outbursts of rebellion and um, and just sort of being like it's enough towards different forms of power that we have around us, such as the hashtag Black Lives Matter movement, hashtag Me Too movement, hashtag Neo Namas in Latin America, and so on and so forth. And this is a moment that is is also another one of those where it crystallizes all of these frustrations. And that's one of the reasons I think it is catching on and showing so much solid. There's so much solidarity around the world. As far as the difference between this and um, the 2009 movement in Iran, the Green Movement in Iran, that movement was still very much within the, the bounds of politics of the Islamic Republic. It was a movement for electoral integrity and for reform of the system. Today's movement is, is it doesn't, it's not calling for reform. Today's movement is calling for a, a, a new vision of politics. It's calling for um, a vision of politics that is about life and not destruction, and that is about the future and, and, and women at the helm of it. That is significantly different. It is, it is the, the protesters today in Iran, 
they are in in many ways they've moved beyond the state. This is no longer about the state. This is about um, trying to create a new political imagination of of what comes after the Islamic Republic. And so um, this is why this is such a significant moment. It's not that tomorrow the regime is going to come toppling down, but it's that for the first time we have a national um, movement of sorts that is has moved beyond the parameters of the state, is no longer looking to reform the state, and that is calling forth a completely new vision for um, uh, politics in Iran. Well, Nargis Bajogli, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Anthropologist, professor of Middle East Studies at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, author of Iran Reframed, Anxieties of Power in the Islamic Republic. We'll link to your piece in Vanity Fair, headlined, Woman, Life, Freedom, Iran's Protests or Rebellion for Bodily Autonomy. And Nilo Tabrizi, I want to thank you in Vancouver, journalist and writer, uh, currently a video journalist at The New York Times, where your most recent piece is titled, What Video Footage Reveals About the Protests in Iran. We're going to end this segment with the renowned political activist, scholar and author Angela Davis, who expressed her solidarity with protesters in Iran in a video posted on social media. This is an excerpt. I want to offer my heartfelt solidarity to all those in Iran who have decided that Masa Amini's death at the hands of the Islamic Republic shall not be in vain. As one of the many scholar activists in the United States who has identified for a very long time as an ally of progressive and radical movements in Iran, I offer my condolences to Masa Amini's family and friends, and I say thank you to all those whose militant refusals directed at the regime, along with his morality police, have created the occasion for Masa Amini's name to reverberate around the world. In her name, people are standing up and are saying no to the repression meted out by the Islamic Republic. They are harbingers of hope, of hope not only for the people of Iran, but for all of us who want an end to racial capitalism, misogyny, economic repression, and who strive for more habitable futures for all beings on this planet. Long live Masa Amini. Political dissident activist author Angela Davis sending her message of solidarity with the women of Iran. Coming up, we'll also hear from India. And as India's prime minister offers to help efforts to end the war in Ukraine, we'll speak to the prominent Indian activist Kavita Krishnan. Stay with us. برای توی کوچه رخصیدن برای ترسیدن به وقت بوسیدن برای خواهرم خواهرت خواهرامون برای تغییر مغزها که پوسیدن برای شرمندگی برای بیپولی برای حسرت یک زندگی معمولی برای کودک زبالگرد و آرزوهاش برای این اقتصاد دستوری برای 
این هوای آلوده برای ولی از رو درختای فرسوده برای پیروز و اعتمال انقرازش برای سگهای بیگناه ممنوعه برای گریه های بیوقفه برای تصویر تکرار این لحظه برای چهره ای که میخنده برای دانش آموزا برای هاینده برای این بهشت اجباری برای نخبه های زندانی برای کودکان افغانی برای این همه برای غیر تکراری برای این همه شعارهای تو خالی برای by the Iranian singer Shirvin Hajipur, which has become the unofficial anthem of the Iran protests. The song's lyrics are taken entirely from messages Iranians have posted online about why they're protesting. Shirvin Hajipur posted the song September 28th and received 40 million views before he was forced to take it down. He was arrested the next day, was released earlier this week on bail. He's awaiting trial. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. As we turn now to look at Russia's invasion of Ukraine with a focus on India's response. On Tuesday, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi spoke by phone with the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky. Modi's office released a statement saying, quote, he expressed his firm conviction that there can be no military solution to the conflict and conveyed India's readiness to contribute to any peace efforts, unquote. This came just days after India joined China, Gabon, and Brazil in abstaining from a vote at the UN Security Council condemning Moscow's annexation of four regions in Ukraine. Last month, Modi told Russia President Vladimir Putin that today's era is not one for war. Modi's remarks at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization summit in Uzbekistan were widely interpreted as criticism of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But despite Modi's comments, India has seen its economic ties to Russia grow since the February invasion. India now imports about 750,000 barrels of oil from Russia per day. That's up from about 20,000 barrels a day a year ago. Joining us is Kavita Krishnan. She is a prominent feminist activist, recently stepped down from her leadership position of the Communist Party of India in opposition to the party's stance on the war in Ukraine. Why don't we begin right there, Kavita, and welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Talk about why you stepped down and what India's position is and what the Communist Party's position is. You're a longtime Marxist-Leninist feminist. That's right. Um, I think that across various ideological spectrums in India, there is a lot of misinformation about the war, about Russia's invasion, and therefore a lot of sympathy for Russia rather than for Ukraine. Uh, the vast majority of Indians and Indian political formations do not see Ukraine, do not acknowledge Ukraine as such. They have an old relationship with the Soviet Union and they see Ukraine as sort of vaguely some sort of um, satellite of Russia. So I think that that is a more general problem. But on the left, I think the problem is much more acute. Uh, in India, you have a far right which is ideologically aligned with Putin's project. You had posters uh, put up in support of Russia's invasion by Hindu supremacists in the center of Delhi saying that, uh, you know, the 
in Putin will achieve a reorganization of the Soviet Union. He will re, uh, you know, he'll put together the Russian Empire again, the way that we want to put together an Indian Empire, an undivided India, which includes India and all its neighbors as part of India. That's the far right position. But the left position, uh, the party I left was the CPIML. CPI and CPIM, these are parties which have a much more openly pro-Putin position. They are openly pro-Putin. They openly look forward to a relationship growing between Russia and China. CPIML officially says that it is in solidarity with Ukraine. But having said that, it undermines a whole lot of that by um, contributing to spreading a whole, uh, many elements of Putin propaganda, namely referring to the 2014 Maidan protests in Ukraine as a U.S.-backed coup, referring to you know exaggerating the presence of neo-Nazis and Nazis in Ukraine, um, not acknowledging uh, the extent of danger that Russia's fascist and imperialist project presents to the world. And I think above all, the main problem there lies in the sentence that I can quote from a recent write-up by the General Secretary of the CPIML. It says, regardless of the internal character of competing global powers, a multipolar world is certainly more advantageous to progressive forces and movements and so on. Now, the idea that means that, uh, you know, uh, the idea that you must support those poles in the world that are seen as a challenge to America which is the only country recognized as imperialist, and that all other Poles, even if they comprise fascists and authoritarians like Putin or Modi or Bolsonaro or Xi, uh, that somewhere or the other we have to be softer on those, on those leaders, those regimes. We must uh, temper our solidarity to the movements against those regimes. Uh, we must ration out our solidarities because it is our job to somehow maintain this balance of power. So this kind of realist uh, rhetoric and realist ideological corruption of Marxism is, I think, what uh, troubled me very deeply right now. And Kavita, just on that question of uh, supporting what might be uh, or is developing into a more multilateral global frame, there have been many who've expressed hope in the economic alliance of BRICS, that is, uh, of uh, Brazil, Russia, India, <coughs> China and South Africa. Yeah. What is your response to that? I mean, together, they constitute 41 percent of the world population, 24 percent of world GDP and over 60 percent share in world trade. You see, when it comes to economic cooperation, why not? I think that the celebration of BRICS as some sort of, uh, you know, multipolar uh, regionalism and so on. I saw the interview on Democracy Now! with Vijay Prashad, for instance. I find that deeply disturbing because for me, whether it's West or East, uh, the main thing that should concern us now are the struggles against authoritarianisms inside various countries. Whether it's America, whether it's the UK and, you know, the Brexit context, whether it's Trump in America, whether it's Putin in Russia, whether it's Modi in India and so on and so forth. You have uh, struggles uh, for democracy against uh, deeply authoritarian and fascist forces. And we should be talking about how to strengthen those forces. Instead of that, if you have a sort of uh, blind and... Um, vulgar sort of economic, um, you know, framework in which you look at the world 
and you start celebrating BRICS in itself or as of itself as some kind of democratic anti-imperialism, I think that is pretty dangerous because you're not looking at the politics of China, the politics of Russia, the politics of Brazil, the politics of India. China, for instance, in the region in, in which, uh, you know, India is, of course, and right now ruled by an openly Hindu supremacist Islamophobic government. Uh, likewise, China is a country which is a model of authoritarianism from which India's regime, too, is taking notes and learning. It is openly Islamophobic in its actions towards uh, putting Uyghur Muslims in concentration camps. It is backing, funding the Myanmar military, which is uh, doing genocide against the Rohingya people. Surely these are things that uh, at least the left ought to address, ought to mention, ought to recognize. Uh, likewise, I find that large portions of the left do not even mention Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The interview with Vijay Prashad on Democracy Now!, for instance, he makes no mention of, of, of the word invasion. So it's as though there is some shadow war going on somewhere on some other planet between Russia and the West, you know, where there's no mention of Russia's having invaded Ukraine and refused to recognize it and wanting to wipe it off uh, off the surface of the earth. So that is what I find deeply disturbing and, uh, you know, for the prospects of the left as well as for the prospects of democracy in our world. Kavita, could you speak specifically about what India's interests are now? I mean, obviously, as, as you pointed out earlier, India has a historic relationship, despite being a part of the non-aligned movement. They were more allied with the Soviet Union during the Cold War uh, than with the U.S. But now we just reported earlier uh, that OPEC, for example, OPEC Plus, uh, have decided to cut oil production by 2 billion uh, barrels a day. Uh, critics say uh, that this will uh, increase uh, uh, profits for Russia because they are one of the oil exporters and uh, the less oil there is, the higher prices will remain. India is one of the main importers of Russian oil. Could you talk about some of the other links between the two? Well, uh, India is one of the biggest exporters of arms from Russia. Uh, bulk importer of, the arms of that arms. India buys. Importer, importer, sorry, I, I meant importer. The biggest importer of arms from Russia. Um, it, it is one of, Russia is one of its main suppliers of arms. And uh, I think that apart from that, you know, Euro, even when the war is going on, uh, India recently held military exercises with Russia and China uh, at uh, Russia's behest. And uh, it has, it, it, uh, India is, of course, also tries to very firmly position itself with America uh, as, part, as part of its foreign policy uh, position. So it's actually walking a tightrope. It would like to uh, enhance its relationship with Russia. At the same time, it would not like to burn its bridges with America. So what you see India doing, that, that, uh, that conversation you mentioned between Modi and Zelensky and the earlier conversation between Modi and Putin, where he said, oh, you know, today is not the time for war and so on and so forth. I think that you have to balance these words um, and their rather empty symbolism with India's actual actions. So India's actions have been... Um, in the, on the floor of the UN have been to abstain from uh, the earlier condemnation of um, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and now again on the Russian annexation of uh, the Ukrainian territories. Um, and I think that uh, 
we also have to keep in mind this ideological, uh, you know, we should be paying much more attention here in India and in the world to the fact that the language Putin's last speech spoke about this rise of civilizational powers, which uh, basically should uh, have domination in the world rather than liberal democracy and uh, LGBTQ rights and so on, which he associates with Western uh, countries alone and Western power, Western hegemony. I think that is a dangerous rhetoric that finds a resonance even in Hindu supremacist organizations in India, as well as, uh, you know, even in other countries, you know, even in China, for instance. The idea that human rights or, the, uh, uh, or LGBTQ rights or feminism are basically Western ideas and they have nothing to do, that they should not dominate the world. Uh, that is something challenged, of course, by the feminist protests you see in Iran or India or so many other places in the world, right? You see that uh, people in all these countries, uh, in the global south as well, want democracy. But uh, according to this ideology that Putin, that Hindu supremacists in India, that uh, China's uh, CPC, that uh, the kind of ideology that they are presenting now is that all these ideas represent Western domination and Western, Western uh, concepts of democracy to which uh, we need not be answerable. So I think that that is something extremely dangerous that we need to pay attention to. You have talked about Russia as really a center of the far right globally. If you could explain what you mean, that might surprise many. Well, I think that uh, the relationship between Russia and the campaign for Brexit, between Russia and uh, Donald Trump, uh, you know, financial relationships as well as other uh, political relationships, I think that those are pretty much well known by now. But I think that uh, to dismiss talk of these as some kind of Russophobia or whatever it is would be wrong. I think that we do need to pay attention to the fact that Russia is trying to set itself up as this uh, far right kind of uh, you know rallying center. I think that in India, however, things are somewhat different. The Indian far right, the Indian Hindu supremacist movement has its own uh, kinds of, uh, you know, resources and its own um, its own world. But there's no doubt that for a very long time, um, the Russian far right, Russian fascists like Dugin have cultivated the far right in India. Uh, Dugin, in a 2019 article, specifically refers to Narendra Modi's election in 2019, his second election, as the rise of civilizational identity in India. This is identical with the language used by the RSS ideologue Ram Madhav in his article in the Indian Express in 2017, where he said that India, you know, the genius of India lies in these civilizational values of caste and uh, religion and so on and so forth. And that, uh, again, he says, he said there that the ideas of Western liberal democracy are uh, imposed on India by Nehru and that Modi's government is the first government in Indian history which is genuinely in touch with Indian values. So I think that these, uh, these relationships, in that article in 2019, Dugin quoted Datu who is uh, who was an RSS uh, leader, the leader of the Hindu supremacist organization to which Modi belongs. So We have 10 um, seconds, these, Kavita. Uh, yes, yes. I see these ideological relations as extremely important to uh, pay attention to. And I think that all over the world, no matter which country you live in, 
supporting each other's struggles for democracy against authoritarianism and fascism. These are absolutely the most important, far more important than some kind of geopolitical balance. We have to leave it there. Kavita Krishnan, prominent feminist activist in India, stepped down from her leadership position in the Communist Party of India, speaking to us from Balai, India. I'll be speaking at Brown University in Providence today at 4. All are welcome at Pembroke Hall. I'm Amy Goodman with Nirmin Sheikh.